Here's the thing. In a hot market, people get lazy. They just deliver product. There's a whole lot less care about, you know, what can we do that's going to be compelling. So as crazy as it sounds, a difficult market is far more exciting to me because you have to work harder, you have to think harder, and you have to ensure that what you do is going to actually get people's attention. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I trust you are well. I'm doing great. I have a terrific conversation coming up with a real thought leader in the development industry, and I'm sure you will enjoy our discussion. I certainly found it quite inspiring. Before I get to that, here's an update on my two projects. We're still waiting to hear back from Council about our new application for my site where we failed last year at the planning tribunal to get a refusal overturned. We should get a response this week, which will no doubt be a request for further information, or RFI, to buy the council more time and reset the decision-making clock. On my new site, we're still working on getting the design finalised, but we need to get something into council in the next two weeks to keep the existing planning application, which we took over when we bought the site, active. I've just asked for a landscape plan to be prepared to support the town planning package that the architect is finalising. And thanks to the people who have been emailing me about the property development mentoring program offered by my last guest, Troy Harris. It seems a few of you have been inspired to take action on the developing front. If you are interested in learning how to develop property safely and profitably, then email me, justin at propertydevelopmentpodcast.com, and let's get the conversation started. Okay, on with the show. Today I'm speaking with Andy Hoyne, a respected thought leader who is heavily involved with helping some well-known property companies with the marketing and strategic positioning of their development projects. Andy is the founding principal of Hoyne and has been working in and around the property sector for the past 25 years, helping major Australian and international developers and councils create recognisable landmarks across Australia. This, coupled with Andy's travels around the world, mean he has seen how the power of effective placemaking can completely transform communities. Andy strongly believes that we can do more to create meaningful places, and this led him to publish his book, The Place Economy, a significant resource book that looks at best practice placemaking around the globe and its social and economic impacts. And you will have a chance to win a copy of that book, so stay tuned for how. This ended up being another long chat, so I've broken it up into two parts. In the first half of the interview, we cover the importance of having a point of difference, how you can mitigate risk through innovation, and the must-do marketing activities for developers on a budget. In part two, we will cover how to grow your development business and create a company that really stands out. Keep an ear out during this part of the discussion for Andy's tips on how you can get 200 people lining up to buy your product. I started off by asking Andy what food he would eat until he was sick, and he couldn't decide which one to choose. Uh, uh, is it tiramisu, is it lasagna, is it pasta, but whatever it is, it's Italian. Ah, well, you've just given a whole menu there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very good at lasagna, I finished with the tiramisu. Yeah, I did go a bit backwards. I think it's the influence of my wife. She loves dessert. But um, 
Yeah, I, it's probably also a bad habit of mine when, you know, give me one answer. I'm like, cool, here's the three things. It's like, that's not one answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might come in useful later on as uh, we go through the conversation. But what is it about Italian food that you like? Oh, I think it's partly, I mean, it tastes bloody good. It's the culture too. I, I love Italy. I love visiting it. It must be that I grew up with so many great Italian friends, you know, whether I was in Wangaratta, um, you know, my friends from Myrtleford or whether I, you know, when I was growing up in Werribee uh, and when you're a skippy, you're actually a minority. Um, and uh, there's just something about the people, the place, uh, the flavours uh, and the culture. Uh, I just really enjoy it. Well, we're fortunate here in Melbourne to have plenty of options when it comes to good Italian food, so you're not missing out. Now tell us what you do, who you are. <laughs> so I have, my agency is called Hoing. Um, I always tell people never to name their business after themselves. The sounds of Melbourne. Yeah. But when I started the business 27 years ago, it seemed like you'd have to be a bit of a wanker to, uh, to actually, as an adult with experience and knowledge, go and name a company after yourself. So yeah, maybe I was a wanker to start and I've wisened up, but Unfortunately, it's too late to go changing it. So we are, over that 27 years, we've been a branding agency, but over the last, say, up to 15 years, we've really focused on place and property. So the services that we offer are place visioning, branding, and marketing in the place and property sector. Uh, We don't do anything outside that category. Uh, We're very passionate about place and property. Um, And interestingly, while we do now have a service called Place Visioning, uh, it's something we've been doing for a long time, but it's only something we've actually attached a title to in recent years um, because people started to tell us that we were doing placemaking, um, which to me is a pretty generic term and a bit confusing, and it means different things to different people, particularly whether you're in government or private enterprise. It's either considered a nice value-add for the community or a bloody expensive cost that I don't want to have to spend money on. Um, the reality is that by doing place visioning, it's neither just of those things. It's... It's really a, a service that focuses on collaborating with all the key people in the development process at the very beginning to ensure that you are creating something that is distinct, unique enough that it will engage the market and will actually create a narrative through the entire construction and development process so that every other consultant can get on board and understand what makes this development special, why people would pay more money for it and what the overarching concept is and the story attached to it. So for us, it's probably the most important thing that we do in all projects before we even get to branding and marketing. And so can you break it down what that actually means when you start saying place visioning or place branding? Can you give me some examples of projects that help articulate or elaborate on what that actually looks like? Yeah, well, for me, they're two very different things and at very different ends of the spectrum. So for me, place visioning is really about coming up with an idea about what a development should be. Um, I just have dozens or hundreds of examples and it's hard to start with one specifically but what I rather than do that it's as diverse as a client coming to me and saying hey you know I'm going to develop a, a white goods center and us saying well actually that's probably not the best use of that site let's actually assess the, the needs of that community and, and what's really missing and in doing that assessment finding out well actually what that community really needs is an entertainment center not a white goods center and so actually looking at um, the feasibility uh, and actually what could possibly be constructed on site instead of just having a boring one-level white goods centre, you've got a three-level entertainment centre, which 
possibly at a lower rate per square metre, but over three levels is a far more compelling commercial proposition. Instead of being open from 10am till 5pm, it's actually open from 7am until 1am. the, that's probably an extreme example. Uh, there are other simpler ones where an existing one we're working on right at the moment where the clients come along and said, I just want to do a residential tower. And we have done a bit of an analysis and said, look, you've got 10 competitors across the road or down the street. Uh, if we actually look at this market, there's a lot of opportunity to actually break this project down into a number of components. So now what it is we're actually going to be delivering and what's being applied for DA is it's going to have lower level grocery, it's going to have fine three levels of fine grain F and B, uh, and we've actually determined who those tenants might be and by curating uh, the different needs of that market. Uh, we're going to have two levels of commercial and we believe the return is going to be substantially higher over a longer period for a client that's generally used to holding assets. We're going to have an 80-bed uh, boutique hotel. Uh, we've already got two hotel operators that are uh, vying through an EOI process. And all we would be left with in the apartments is about 30 apartments. So where it started as one product, it's actually ended up as being about five different products. And instead of the ground playing just being a car park entry and just this fairly useless uh, space that might eventually get leased out to a retail tenancy, We've actually converted that into a really engaged community space that is partly a green space, partly a thoroughfare, uh, and partly an entry point to all the F&B activity that we're going to have over those three levels, uh, as well as a benefit to the grocer on the lower lower ground level. So from my point of view, it's, it's really got nothing to do with branding and everything to do with understanding how to utilize an asset, how to analyze uh, geographic location and the market that exists and what's missing and figure out the most compelling commercial solution that will not only exceed the client's expectations in terms of profit once all is said and done, but it will also actually engage the community. So instead of this notion that the community walks around with you know, pitchforks and fiery sticks saying no to development, we love the idea that the community actually celebrates what's being delivered, that the community actually welcomes the developer and actually believes that while they may not ever spend a cent with that developer, they're not going to buy an apartment, they're not going to lease a shop. In fact, they might not even buy anything from those shops, but what's being delivered actually adds value to that community. And so how do you go about determining that stack, I guess, of tenants or uh, what the mix would be? How do you go into an an area Mm -hmm. and figure out, oh, it would be good to have food and groceries on the ground, some uh, beverage, food and beverage on the second, commercial, yep. hotel, etc. Is look, that just a gut feel? Or is it, look, it all starts research? out with analysis. I mean, it is research. It, it, it's research on a multitude of levels. Um, you can literally do desktop research and Google all the categories and see what's available. Uh, you can actually get documents and read through and see what the market is saying in term, terms of where opportunity exists and where uh, certain markets are changing in terms of increased needs. Um, but often I feel that it's just walking the streets. It's as simple as spending an entire day walking down you know, 40 different streets, chatting to the local butcher, um, having a word to people on the street, and then being a bit confused about who you are and why you're asking all these damn questions. Um, and just finding out and, and getting you know, to be able to tap into locals 
and getting a sense of what they think is missing. And once you get some of those insights and you investigate them a bit more deeply, um, you can determine what are real and what are not and what have commercial opportunity and what do not. And so that's actually not that difficult a process. But sadly, it's a process that I think very few developers ever undertake, which kind of blows my mind because... You know, in our world, a really tiny development might be tens of millions and a big development might be hundreds and a major one is billions. Uh, and yet I'm surprised so little analysis gets done on what actually needs to be created as opposed to this notion that a developer says, well, I, I do apartments or I do commercial or I know I just do industrial. Now, by all means, there are lots of developers who do have a specialisation in the category and I'm not suggesting they shouldn't. But if they want to be progressive, if they want to actually take advantage of market opportunities, then they have to be more open-minded about what that mix might be. Or they may need to pivot. And if they've got the right-sized organisation, it's just about hiring the right skills to help them pivot. That was a question that I wanted to ask you. Um, how does a developer evolve or how do they react when you go to them and say, instead of your tower full of residential... We're proposing a mix of commercial, hotel, etc. If they're a residential developer, as you say, and that's their specialty and they're used to building towers or apartments or whatever it is, they're good at that, they know that, you come along and say, you're not going to do... We don't suggest you do that, Mr. Developer or Mrs. Developer. We should do something new. How do they adapt to that or what's the reaction and or how do they then take that and move forward? So uh, when an existing or prospective client approaches us and says, look, this is our plan, this is what we're looking to, uh, to create, um, I'd say half the time we, we look at it and say, that's great, wow, this is really interesting. Um, we believe we can add value in a lot of instances and it might be about finessing the approach, it might be about uh, being more specific about a, a really clear audience it might be about adapting some of the approach to the product so it actually meets the needs of that particular audience. But for half the cases that we would look at, I'd say the developers got it pretty close to right. For the other half, we would respond by saying, look, I understand why you've arrived at this conclusion. Um, you know, you've got a lot of experience. However, you know, I think you need to consider some of these factors, uh, the current market, and what we believe might be some great commercial opportunities. So we would make suggestions, uh, initially just free sort of top line, just to kind of start a conversation. Um, people generally fall into two camps very, very quickly. Literally, from a first conversation, we will find that about 70% of developers will say, wow, this is great insight. You know, I hadn't considered that. Loving all the things you've got to contribute. Um, we would certainly give that a lot of consideration. At the very least, why don't we start working on this together and actually go through the process to see what it is that we can ultimately create. And in some instances, that might push a project back three, six or 12 months. But we'll only ever do that if we believe that the upside from a profitability, approvals and product point of view is going to be so much exponentially better. So it's not about trying to get sort of a 2% uh, increase. It's really because we think maybe there's the ability to get 10 or 20% increase uh, and a smoother uh, process. For the, say, probably 30% of the clients that wouldn't react well, 
Uh, they'd say, no, 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 we're not interested in that. We just want to bang out these apartments or townhouses. Or, no, we've got it sorted. We, this is what we've always done. We just do that. We just need you guys to do some branding and marketing. In those instances, we would either politely decline and just say, look, we're probably not the best fit for you. Uh, there are other firms who do branding and marketing. In fact, they're everywhere. They're not hard to find. Um, so, yeah, look, we... We wouldn't say this out loud because we wouldn't want to be offensive, but we just don't want to work on shit projects. Um, you know, right. no life's short. No one's listening, so... <laughs> it's just me and you. Yeah, so, uh, look, I really value my time on this earth and I want to know that every day I go to work, I'm working on something that I enjoy. And, I, you know, we've got a team of over 70 people and the only way to keep great people is to give them great work. I mean, yes, culture is important. The way you treat them is important. How much money you pay them is very important. But you've got to have great work. And if we start accepting shitty jobs, people are going to get depressed. How do you get passionate about delivering a solution for a shitty job? So we really want to see people be successful. You know, whilst people look at our business from a very sort of traditional mindset of branding and marketing, um, you know, we really think that we're business people who are consultants trying to add value to both the community and the client's product and profitability um, and in the process ensure that what's being delivered is best of class. I want to explore this idea that you talked about where you'd go back to the developer and say, listen, instead of the residential, we're going to do this mix because we think this area is ready for it or there's nothing else being offered. Your competitors are doing the same thing but different. How do you forecast ahead... Because, say, two years ago, for example, three years ago, someone came with a residential project and the market's pretty strong. I mean, the natural tendency would be to say, well, residential's really hot. Why would we do anything else? We've, we think this product's going to sell. Yeah. Takes a couple, you know, year, two years to get your permit, by which stage the market has turned and now residential is a bit softer and everyone's talking about owner-occupier markets or doing hotels or putting a mix of commercial. Now that's the sort of flavour of the month. Mm. And so you can go back to a developer and say, let's do this different type of tenancy stack. And everyone goes, oh, yes, that's a great idea. That's what the market wants now. So how do you forecast out a couple of years to try and determine what the market's going to need in two or three years' time as opposed to what's good now? Sure. So... The amount of time that we would change the mix or propose to change the mix would be maybe 10 or 15% of the time. So it's not the bulk of the projects. Uh, it's really where we see a fantastic opportunity. And those opportunities need to belie timing from the point of view that, you know, a really quick project in development, you know, it might be 18 months, uh, more likely three years. And, you know, God, it's, it's a master plan or a multi-stage project. You know, we're talking six to 10 years. So you have to come up with solutions that mitigate uh, the issue of the changing market because markets will always change. That's just a fact. There's no such thing as a solution that belies a market. But solutions that actually focus on two key aspects will always be successful. And the first one is looking at the local existing market and who the competitors are and what product exists So long as you actually have a point of difference and you're offering something that is not saturated in that market, you will, and you create it correctly, you will always find a great market. 
Uh, and secondly, it's about actually the product itself. So what is it you're doing to create a distinct point of difference? Uh, you know, do you have a heritage component? Do you have an incredible architect that's done something that's going to be so award-winning that it gets heaps of media and attention? Uh, have you actually approached it with a single market in mind that's so compelling that they don't have any alternative uh, offers to actually approach and consider as uh, for purchasing? So what is it you're doing that won't matter whether it's a hot or cold market? And when it's a hot market, people just take... St- Actually, here's the thing. In a hot market, people get lazy. They just deliver product. There's a whole lot less care about, you know, what can we do that's going to be compelling. So as crazy as it sounds, a difficult market is far more exciting to me because you have to work harder, you have to think harder, and you have to ensure that what you do is going to actually get people's attention. Uh, And I believe that even in tough markets, you can still command a premium price point. You can still do very successfully at the top end of the market. And I see this all over Australia. And I've got, you know, there's some great examples of people, even in Brisbane right now, where the market is for shit. Aria just launched another tower in South Brisbane, and it sold out immediately at the highest possible price per square meter. Now, why can Aria do that? And yet there will be 50 or 60 developers in Brisbane who can't. Because all they're doing is cookie cutter. All they're doing is banging out generic stock. And even at those low, low, low price points, even the investors don't want it. You know, even the channel agents still want to knock off another 10%. And they're being paid 5 to 10% commission anyway, which is just ridiculous. Yet, what are Aria doing? Well, they're selling at about 20% above that market. They're selling out immediately. And they're probably paying really low commissions because it's an easy get. Because people want to be a part of the product they create. Well, that's a good point. So what is it that they're doing that separates them? from everybody else? Well, they're a good example because they're probably one of the fewer developers that actually understand how to create a compelling ground plane. See, the problem is in development, everybody gets fixated on uh, where all the GR exists. Now, if you look at your gross development value and you go, well, 98% of it is in the apartments and the tower and only 2% of it's in the ground plane, people ignore the 2%. But actually, it's the 2% that can be the compelling proposition for the entire tower. Because it's the 2% that you walk in and out of every day. It's the 2% that actually creates uh, a meaningful destination for people who don't live there, whether it's a bar, a restaurant, or a shop, or it's even just an incredible entry space. And it's that 2% that actually can influence uh, a developer to increase the overall price of what it is that's taking to market. So what ARIA does really well is that they know how to curate good F&B. They don't do that lazy shit of just putting a leasing sticker on the window when they finish and hoping someone will come along and stick a kebab shop or a 7-Eleven in there. Um, you know, and how depressing would that be if you'd bought an apartment on top of one of those? Um, only slightly less depressing than actually having the ground plane empty with Felice stickers on it for the next two years while it just grows dust and flies under the front door. Yes, I've seen one of those recently that I drive past regularly on a corner and it's been vacant for... Nine months. Yeah. So what ARIA does is... Different agency stickers going up every three or four months. They they create their vision up front of what their development is going to be, how it's going to have a point of difference, who the clear and distinct market is, not something for everyone. Um, They then go about speaking to the right kind of F&B operators. They do them a deal. They might actually give them a rent-free period. They might even fit out their restaurant for them for free. Um, So what they do is they mitigate the risk 
of a business that normally would never agree that far in advance to commit to being a part of a development that may not be delivered for three years because that's not their business model. But by actually just perhaps doing a heads of agreement, by uh, not you know, creating any risk for that operator, uh, they are able to leverage uh, their inclusion. They're able to market it. They were able to mitigate the concern of the residential buyer and in the process increase the price point of what it is that they're selling And then when it's finally completed and delivered, these people are living on top of a cool restaurant, wine bar or retail business that is exactly what it is that they were promised. It probably exceeds their expectations and that they've therefore created a destination. Now, buildings are not brands, but buildings can be destinations. And when you actually associate uh, good businesses or good brands with it, that's what becomes the brand. So I think Ari has done an incredibly good job of that. And we've been working with them on Fish Lane uh, in South Brisbane. And we've just seen the incredible work that they've done on bringing the right consultants on board, having the right future vision. And whilst I think some people have a bit of a giggle at them that, wow, they've spent all this money giving away free leases and doing fit-outs for all these small operators, I can assure you that if you look at a spreadsheet over a six-year period in terms of how much revenue they will make just from the ground plane, they will smash everybody else in the same market. The same people who might be getting rent from day one from their kebab shop or 7-Eleven will not even come close to making the profits and margins that Aria will, who may have given away a year's rent and actually paid for their fit-out. And I think Tim was saying that just in some of the projects that he's been working on in recent years, he's invested about $10 million dollars. But he will not only make far more money on that ground plane over a period of time, but it's the core reason why he is selling his properties for a premium while people don't move out. And the resales are actually achieving a 12% return in a market that's actually bottomed out to about 15 or 20% loss. Uh, So the simple philosophy of understanding how to create and curate an amazing ground plane solution, as well as all the other amenity that he does within his buildings on the rooftops, etc. All of those things coming together with a reputation that he's been doing it again and again successfully, that's why people buy. And that's why people like him don't have tough markets. Well, I hope they do something better with the external treatment of their building than a lot of the other buildings in South Brisbane, because I was up there at Christmas time and I was shocked i think at the vanilla like appearance of some of the towers in south brisbane they're just concrete boxes with windows and there's some appalling towers in well all of our cities really and uh you know there are a lot of big name developers who have been around for decades to blame it's quite sad because there are so many progressive intelligent people in our industry um that we have the ability to do better so you know, when I see what ARIA does specifically in that area of South Brisbane, you know, they hire Ellenberg Fraser, Rothy Lohman, um, you know, all these really compelling architects that are doing great work up there, DKO, Bates Smart, Hassel, Woods, Baggett, you name it, Cox. But the reality is that in some of these markets, you know, we have opportunistic developers who are trying to take an approach that they think mitigates risk. Now, risk is a really interesting conversation. It's a conversation I really like talking about because traditionally the idea of mitigating risk was to do the same thing you'd always done because you knew it made money and you knew how to do it. But the reality is that 
these days that is the most risky thing you could ever do because no one gives a shit. No one's going to line up. No one's going to pay a premium. And certainly no one's going to celebrate your arrival. So the only way to mitigate risk is actually to understand what it is that people want, create a compelling solution, exceed their expectations. By all means, charge the moon and back because you will find a market who is willing to pay it. I mean, that's business 101. So where's the missing link? Like well, what you're saying to me, I'm common sense. nod my head and go, yeah, of course. But yet, what percentage of the uh, market Australia-wide do you think does that? I don't know. Like 5%? Just, really? I, just, I think 10% if we're being optimistic. Yeah. So if it, I agree with you. What I'm saying is not clever. It's common sense. But yet, at least 90% of the market in Australia does not do it. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars in investment that has not been capitalised on, that people are not getting the returns they should for the risks that they're taking. And sadly, the community is not getting a solution in the built form that they should be getting in this day and age. Well, let's explore that a little bit more then around why are people or why are developers reluctant to do that? Is it just because they don't know how? It's, <laughs> it's just an added capital cost? Okay, so... Call me, like, I'm generally an optimistic guy, but now you can start calling me a sceptic. Who are developers run by these days? Are they run by entrepreneurs, innovators? They used to be run by architects. They're now run by CFOs. What do CFOs do? They cut costs. Do CFOs invest in entrepreneurialism, innovation, or progressive thinking? No, most of the CFOs I know actually are great at going, let's spend less money. Let's do what we did last time. So who's in charge? And who are they beholden to? Well, their idea of risk mitigation is to ensure they're uh, delivering the best possible returns for their shareholders, but at the lowest possible risk. And so they've got the equation wrong. So sadly, the people in charge of the spreadsheets uh, and the P&Ls are really the ones that are looking at it with the wrong mindset. And when we think about innovation, it's often being executed by some of these independent developers who actually understand what it is the market wants and how to bring it to them. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that big developers can't do this. In fact, I think Mervac are incredibly successful uh, at, at creating uh, some of the best innovation this industry has seen and delivering incredible product for the price they sell it for. Fraser's Property, another fantastic example. I mean, these guys have delivered some of the best developments known globally in Australia, and they've been awarded for it. So it's not that big business can't do it. In fact, big business has the best chance of doing it because they can do it on scale and they hire some of the best people in the industry. But they're not all there. And if you actually look at the top 15 development companies in Australia, I'm not sure how many more you'd start adding to that list. So if I sit down with you and go, come on, Andy, I'm a small time developer. I don't have billions of dollars to spend on a project. I understand the concept that it's good to invest in branding or coming up with a concept but how do I do it what do I go about doing it and without you know, I can't go and spend a million bucks on branding or marketing yep. or consulting with you what are three or four things or what would you say to me to help me out so the first thing is you actually don't need to spend a lot of money to get this right because it's just about ideas and you know I remember uh, reading a quote from the CEO at Sunland who an incredibly great good developer They've done some amazing stuff Australia-wide, particularly in Queensland. And he said, 
we don't spend any more on design. Everybody thinks that we're spending a fortune on design, but we're pretty much spending the same. Yeah, it looks better, and yeah, it seems like we've got better materiality, but partly, you know, we achieve this because of the incredible relationships that we have with our suppliers and consultants. We are loyal, we give them all our work, they give us a good price, and we just continue to work together to create these outrageously good solutions that the community um, celebrates. Um, and yet we're making fantastic margins too. So to answer the question in the context of a really small developer is that firstly, it's just about getting the right people in the room to get the idea right. No, don't just jump in and say, I'm delivering six apartments. Say, okay, well, if you're only gonna do this tiny little six pack, no worries. How will you deliver something that people will line up for? How will you get 200 people registering their interest to buy your six apartments? Well, you've obviously got to have some great design. That's a given. You've got to think about uh, you know, who your market is and make sure that you're catering to that market. In fact, if anything, when you're a developer doing a small project, it's easier because you're not trying to figure out how am I going to compel 500 people to buy here. You're only compelling six. So, wow, six. You can be very clear about what it is that you're going to do that's distinct. Is it just going to be about the architecture? Is it going to be something incredible about landscaping? Are you going to decide to do rooftops? Are you going to target families and make sure that you've got you know great basements for storage and extra things? Are they going to be focused on people who like wine with a wine cellar? Um, are they going to be marketed uh, the gay community and therefore designed in a particular manner that doesn't need to accommodate children or other things? Uh, are they going to be people who like animals and they're pet friendly? and there's a great little yard for their dogs. The ideas go on and on and on. They're just ideas. And we can all sit down and come up with a hundred of them pretty easily, but it's about what's appropriate. So it's just about having the right conversation with the right people at the beginning, because after the beginning, it's too late. So it doesn't matter if you're only you know, creating six apartments. And at that point you go, okay, well, where do the big costs come in? Well, how much money do I have to spend on branding and marketing? Well, the truth is you should spend nothing on branding because you're not creating a brand. I mean, you know, if you want to call the name and logo a brand, so be it, but it's just a marketing campaign. You know, unless you're creating a destination which requires a brand so people know where to go and what to call it, you're not creating a brand. You're just creating a campaign to sell some product of which you will sell 100%, uh, go through settlement, uh, and then you really have little to do with it in the years to come. So what you're doing is coming up with an idea first and foremost, and then you're finding a way to market that idea within a budget that's actually going to be a percentage of your GDV. So it's not about saying, well, wow, how long is a piece of string? The piece of string's predetermined. You know, if you say, wow, well, I'm doing this little development and, um, wow, it's only, um, it's $10 million. Okay, $10 million. Uh, then you want to be allocating 2% of that $10 million to your marketing efforts, uh, including media. And you're not going to build the sales and display suite, but you are going to need to put money aside to do the creative, do the printing, pay for the digital, and pay for the media. And so that should be 2%. I'd say a lot of small independent developers would probably do their own numbers and think it was half a percent. But I'm telling you it's not, it's 2%. Uh, and, you know, even the big developers, uh, the Murbacks and the Frasers of the world, with all the expense and all the size they go to, they might be doing a project that's $300 million. And they still allocate 2%. Uh, 
Um, there are a lot of other developers who might only allocate 1%. And for a major, major project, you can get away with that sometimes. But it's actually harder for a really small development because 2% of not much is still not much. So it's actually what can you do with not much? And surprisingly, you can do a lot. I'm glad that you mentioned that. But that was my next question. What would you start executing on? What would be your the handful of must-have marketing activities that you would then execute? Okay. So every project is unique, as we all know. Um, and so the first thing, as I say, you know, you put a little bit of money aside to actually create a place vision. Now, you can do it yourself. You can do it with a bunch of people in the room. But you need to come up with an idea that literally becomes the brief for the architects. Uh, so don't go to the architects and let them figure it out. Uh, as much as they enjoy that on occasion, they want to understand what the vision is that you have and why you have it. So be really clear about who you think the audiences are and why you think a particular product approach is going to appeal to them. And by all means, be open to challenge. Be open to them fighting back and coming up with a better solution because all you want is the best solution. But once you've got that vision locked down, that plan, which becomes uh, a brief for the construction, for the development, but it's basically a business plan as well because that should inform the way you think about how much money you're allocating, uh, you know, the margin that you expect to achieve. At that point, um, once you actually have determined the, the approach, I think when you think about marketing, it's about thinking about one, the first thing I would ask is, are you on a busy road? Because if you're on a really busy road or you're in a great location, one of the first things I would do is hoarding. Now, if you're in the city of Sydney or certain locations around Australia where you're prohibited from doing marketing hoarding, that sucks. But for the other 99%, uh, for the right location, I honestly think hoarding is one of the most compelling uh, ways to get people to register their interest on a microsite. Now, obviously, it goes without saying that you need a website that's, um, that's mobile-friendly. It doesn't need to be all bells and whistles. It needs to be enough to engage someone with a bit of information. But the real job, remember, is to get them to engage with the sales team. We want to direct them to the sales team. We don't want to give them everything. And that does change with different projects in terms of how much information you can and should provide. So digital assets, um, obviously from the microsite of the website, uh, then to um, digital advertising. Um, lead generation is one of the single most important things that you should be focusing on in terms of activating um, uh, prospective buyers through social media and other digital leads to deliver them straight to the sales team. Um, whether you do print collateral, like, you know, it's been common for our entire history of doing marketing that we would end up doing a very attractive brochure. Um, look for a really, really small development as much as you'd love to do it. Um, it's not always 100% necessary. Um, we've pretty much done it on every project, but is it 12 pages or is it 60 pages? Well, the budget determines that. So you pretty much have to work backwards because the reality is you know you're going to create CGIs. You're going to create three, six, ten. Um, so it's really getting the core things written down first and then working backwards. So you might have a list of 10 things that you'd like to do, you know, from EDMs through the sales agents uh, through to letterbox drop, which are generally a huge waste of money for most projects these days. Um, 
to print advertising, which has also been less effective, but also dependent on which type of project. So it's about getting your shopping list down, putting your most important things at the top and your least important things at the bottom, putting your budget next to it, and then working your way down the list to that point that you put a red line through it and go, well, look, I can have the top four or five things. I'd love to have the bottom four or five things, but my budget just doesn't allow for it. Don't try and do 10 things cheaply. Just do five things really well because it's the quality of what it is that you do that will determine how attractive it is to those prospective buyers. And it's the effectiveness of the media. What about video? Is that a video have these days? Look, video, I didn't mention video because I think I was trying to talk about this in the context of a really small development with a really small budget. But for us, video is mandatory. Now, I wouldn't say mandatory for a really small development because... You know, you might be looking at a, a tiny budget of, you know, maybe $60,000 and I'm saying, well, the video is going to cost you ten or fifteen. You're thinking, well, shit, that's a pretty big chunk of my little budget. But for anything of any kind of meaningful size project, um, video is mandatory. There's no grey area. There's no, well, maybe that's debatable. It's just simply not debatable. It's mandatory. And then what's important about that video then? So, you know, the video you can use through lead generation channels. You can chop it up into lots of little mini videos. You can use it through the EDMs. So when the uh, sales agents are sort of engaging with um, the people who have registered their interest, they can actually use short tidbits of that video chopped up to constantly provide new information. The reality is that when you're getting an EDM, if it's got a video component, you're far more compelled to look at it, to click on it, and to even inquire about it. So factually, video works in that context, and factually it works through a lead generation and social media platform. Um, It's also great for larger projects to have in a sales and display suite. It's great when you've got a compelling, sizable website. Um, And it's great when you actually use it in other forums, particularly for larger uh, projects that have a lot of other channels. And then what about working with the selling agents? Is that, do you sit down with them and go, here's the vision, here's where we think the interest is or where the audience, we're going to pique the audience's interest? Is that something that you would also do as well? Um, you know, you should always have a hand-in-glove relationship with the sales agents. Uh, bizarrely, a lot of developers try and keep the marketing people and the sales people completely separated, which is just simply crazy. Uh, I still to this day don't know why it's so common. Um, yes, we might have differences of opinion, but good. Get them out on the table. Get them out early. Have that challenge. Um, we might be wrong. They might be wrong. Or either way, but let's just have an open discussion. We're all adults here, we're all professionals. We all want the exact same outcome. So let's have the difficult conversations at the beginning. The other thing that surprises the hell out of me is that sales agents are usually engaged at the point that the developer is ready to go to market. Another insane proposition. At the same time that we're talking about doing a place vision exercise at the very beginning at site acquisition, that's when the sales agent should be engaged because the sales agent should be involved in the discussion about who the audiences are. Because whilst, uh, from our point of view, we believe we've got a huge amount of knowledge and insight, uh, the sales guys are at the coalface of what's happening right at the market at that exact point in time. So whilst they have the tendency to be overly optimistic, um, 
it's just in the nature. Uh, it's also good to kind of hear anecdotes about what's happening right then with those markets and also allowing them to have the input on, you know, product types, product configurations, uh, what they can sell, what they can actually put on the table, what people are going to respond to. So for me, I've always been completely confused about why, why sales agents, whilst they might not start selling for 12, 24 months, why they are not at literally ground zero of the conversation. I guess that's because maybe the developer hasn't decided yet who they want to use, but I would have thought most most of the time they're probably 90% sure about who they're likely to use to sell. I mean, I know yeah, look, it's a fair point. Sometimes the decision hasn't been made. But, you know, I mean, the idea of actually getting someone in even as a paid consultant the idea of like not just constantly being fixated with free advice which the property industry has a strong tendency towards but actually paid advice where there's no long-term commitment come in we'll pay you to be involved you know we're not talking big bucks a very small amount of money but to actually consult with us on this process we're not guaranteeing you'll get the sales the high likelihood is if they do a good job they probably will um and they probably don't even want to be paid but I often say to people, it's probably it's easier to pay people. Think people think, oh, it's great, they don't want to be paid, I'm getting a discount. You never know it's not such a thing as discount. There's an expectation then on behalf of that consultant who's provided that free information. So my view is just pay them and you're done and there's no expectation that you need to do anything if you weren't hundred percent satisfied with the contribution they made. And then at the point at which you need to decide on a sales agent twelve or twenty-four months later. Choose the most appropriate sales agent. Choose the sales agent that might have changed directors or principals or heads of sales or who's achieved the best sales in the area at the time or who's really sort of gunning at the moment, who may not have really been at the top of the market two years previously. There's a saying that uh, free often comes at a cost. Yeah, yeah, it's so true, (laughs) so true. And so what are the challenges you face then as a marketer? Okay, there you go. Part one of my discussion with Andy Hoyne. I think it was chock full of ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. We keep mining for more gold in the second half of the conversation, so make sure you catch that in the next episode. Here are three lessons I took out of that part of my chat with Andy. One, successful property developers understand the importance of having a point of difference. It was a great point that Andy made around the challenges you will face if you deliver the same offering as pretty much everyone else. It means you will ride the ups and downs of the market. Without offering something compelling, how can you expect to influence the price upwards? Andy gave the great example of how the bottom 2% of a building, if done really well, may in fact positively influence the prices of the 98% of units above it, because there is something really interesting and attractive there for buyers. Andy suggested hiring really good, clever consultants who can really help you shape something special. Two, developers can mitigate risk through innovation and difference. Following on from the previous point about being different, if you want to get high returns, then Andy talked about not just continuing to do the same thing over and over again. If you can understand what people want, create a compelling solution, and exceed people's expectations, then you will be able to find a market for your product and command a higher price. Good developers can deliver quality products over and over. Great developers can adapt and change how the game is played. 
Three, the must-do marketing activities for property developers on a budget. I love how Andy came at this question from the point of, how do you get 200 people to line up for your product? That's a great way of thinking. and something I do for my projects when I get ready to market them. I think I only need 20 people, or whatever the number is, to love our offering and agree to sign up. So how can I help them fall in love with one of our properties? Andy talked about following this simple process. Step one, think about who the market is for your project or property and cater to them. Are they families, wine lovers, dog lovers, or young couples? Whoever it is, figure it out and focus on them. What's going to light their fire or get them excited? Step two, have a great design that will attract people. Step three, work out what is going to be distinct about your project then come up with an idea and find out how to market that idea. Remember, Andy advised to do a couple of things really well, rather than trying to do 10 things cheaply. Andy gave you a rule of thumb of a budget of 2% of gross revenue for marketing activities. Okay, that's it for part one of my inspiring chat with Andy Hoyne. Make sure you tune in to part two as we go deeper into what you can do to grow your developing business. If you enjoyed that chat with Andy, you might like to revisit my discussion with real estate agent and property entrepreneur David Stewart in episode 24, where we talked about marketing and selling your projects. David had this piece of advice for developers who want to stand out in a crowded marketplace. One of the biggest things that developers themselves can do is create something that's a little bit unique in the marketplace, create something that reduces that sameness. Um, you know, if you create something that's unique, different, then you're not suffering the same levels of comparative problems that you have with properties that are, that are all the same. David and I covered some good ground in that chat, so dig up episode 24 and take a listen. Don't forget that if you are interested in learning how to develop, then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, and I can send you some information about the program. And check out my Instagram and Facebook pages for my latest developing videos, photos, and news at Property Developer Podcast. You can also find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, strive to be different and stand out from the crowd. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.